Great. Okay. So I'm going to take over and we're going to run quickly through options to treat hepatitis C. And I think um, we could make this really short and say there's lots of great options. And um, almost no matter what you choose nowadays is, is going to work for your patients. But we'll, we'll get in a little more granular detail here. So we're going to try to give you a list of the available drugs and regimens to treat hepatitis C and a little bit about how they work. We'll, we'll just briefly cover that. Talk about the efficacy, which again is very good almost no matter what you're doing. Um, and try to highlight maybe a couple of the spots where there may be some optimization or some things you need to think about to try to really get the highest SBR you can. So this is just the timeline. So hepatitis C is a relatively young virus, just discovered in 89, right? Those of you around before that will remember non-A, non-B hepatitis. Most of that was hepatitis C, but we sequenced the virus in 89. Um, didn't have effective testing really for it till about 92 when the blood supply started to be screened. And then um, as we kind of moved through time, we spent some time messing around with interferon for a while. That was a therapy that didn't work very well and was hard for patients to tolerate, pretty toxic. Um, we came around um, here where bocepivir and telapivir came in, in in 2011 where SVRs jumped significantly, but so did the misery for the patients, as I've put here. That was really the hardest it got. Um, it was a real bear to get people through that type of therapy. Um, but now we're to the point here where we are. We have five, six great options for treatment. Cure rates are really approaching 100% for a lot of populations, and um, treatment is tolerated very well. So this just shows you a schematic of an hepatocyte and how the virus replicates. Um, for those of you that come from any HIV background, a lot of the types of antivirals we use for hep C are going to sound familiar. We have protease inhibitors that work on the virus protein being chopped into its individual pieces so they can do their work. These drugs stop that. We have polymerase inhibitors that specifically stop the RNA from being replicated. There's two different types. Really, functionally, now we just use nucleotide or nucleoside polymerase inhibitors. That would be sofosbuvir is the member of that category. And then the, the, the group that's really kind of taken the stage, or at least is really a component of almost all of our regimens now, are the NS5A inhibitors. And they're extremely potent. The ones we have now work against all the different genotypes. Um, and they actually have a dual mechanism action probably affecting how the virus replicates, but also how it gets out of the cell. So again, very potent option there. Um, so we have lots of different regimens. Um, we've kind of been talking, there was a period where it seemed like you had a new regimen coming on the market every three to six months, and it was a lot of, oh, now I've got to learn a new drug regimen. We've had a period now where it's kind of been quiet. So in 2017, and kind of the end of the summer of 2017, we had a couple regimens approved, uh, fixed-dose combination pills, one, glucapivir pibrentosphere, or, or Mavret, and then Softvelvox, or what's Vosevi, and, and those kind of have, especially the triple combination has a really unique role that we'll just talk a little bit about, which would be treatment experience patients with DAAs. Um, and then, you know, this is kind of the history. We'll, we'll just focus on, there's a few regimens now that we really kind of use primarily. Elbosphere, grosoprevir would be one, and then Softvelodiposphere and Softvelpatosphere, along with glucapivir pibrentosphere. Those are kind of kind of be the mainstays, and we'll walk through those in a little more detail. So there's lots of different names, lots of different drug classes. Here they're kind of color-coded. The top, the darker blue, are all protease inhibitors with the same ending there, Previr. Christy has a great talk where she, she helps you remember how they work. I, I'm not as good at that. Um, and then just like HIV medications, when we started out, Medications were tough to take. You had to take them frequently. They had more side effects, and they weren't as potent. And the same thing has happened with hep C therapy over time. As we get each successive generation of medications, they're all essentially all now down to once a day. Um, 
They are very potent. They now work against all the different types of hepatitis C in general. And they're also less likely to develop resistance. So what I've called here the potency and the resistance barrier has gotten kind of higher and higher as we go. Um, these are the NS5A inhibitors. Again, really a component of all the regimens now. And then, again, the only member of the nucleotide class is sofosbuvir. Um, the standout, I think, for sofosbuvir is that it's pangeotypic, but it probably has the highest barrier to resistance. So patients can take that. Even if they happen to fail the regimen, they're unlikely, almost never have resistance to sofosbuvir. So it really becomes a very key component of anybody you might need to retreat for hepatitis C if they failed their first go around. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So they're also much more active across the spectrum. I'm not going to belabor this point, just to say now, all the drugs we have now really um, will point out the, the one cases where they're kind of specific. Grisopovir elbosphere is still a, a genotype 1 and 4 regimen, but most of the rest of the ones, Softvel and Glucapovir pibrentosphere anyway, are pangenotypic and work against all of them. Um, but we'll point out the differences there. So I thought I'd just highlight the most recent approvals. Uh, one, because they've really become very prominent in terms of what we now use for most all of our patients. Um, it depends on where you practice a little bit and what insurance you're dealing with. Um, that still largely dictates what you're probably going to use unless you have a real strong reason why you can't use that and you need to have a back and forth with whoever the payer is for that patient. Um, certainly where I come from in Colorado, glucapivir pibrensphere is one of the, the main regimens that would be uncovered under our Medicaid program, for example. Um, so this is a pangenotypic, an NS3 protease inhibitor, which is glucapivir, plus an NS5A inhibitor, pibrentosphere. Um, pangenotypic, so again, works against all the genotypes. Um, we still genotype in practice. There are some optimizations and different considerations based on their genotype and whether the patient has cirrhosis or not that I'll walk you through in terms of how you use them. So there's still some genotyping even involved, even though this is a pangenotypic regimen. Um, drug interactions are always something to think about. Um, and the way I approach drug interactions are, I think you just need to know the class of drugs that should raise a little flag in your mind that you think, oh, I need to look a little harder now, or I need to have a pharmacist help me out with this, something like that. And so for this regimen, as for most of them, the things that you should think about are your statins. And always check those. If you come from an HIV background, you're pretty used to checking for statins and drug interactions. Um, Acid-reducing agents is always a consideration. Um, not so much for this regimen, but I think it's one of the groups you need to think about. Um, and then uh, amiodarone is just a standalone for the sofosbuvir-based regimens that you need to keep in the back of your mind as well. But those are kind of the big classes I think about. Anti-epileptics are another one um, that are, can be problematic. And then with protease inhibitors, and this is a recurring theme, but we'll bring it up right here, is you need to um, worry about your patients who have cirrhosis. If it's compensated cirrhosis, it's fine. Andrew's going to take us through how to figure that out. Um, but if they're a decompensated cirrhotic, just remember the protease inhibitors are, really should not routinely be used anyway in that setting um, with potential for uh, hepatotoxicity or decompensation. So the other new approval, just to get that out of the way, was this soft Velvox, um, as it kind of rolls off the tongue. And this is a triple combination. I'm not going to spend a lot more time on this. You'll have these slides. This is, again, a regimen that's really positioned for treating somebody who fails their first go-round with direct-acting antivirals and may have resistance and is kind of, by definition, now a harder patient to treat. And I think, really, for our discussion today, that's where I'll leave this regimen. 
Um, if you need to use that, you're probably going to be in a position where you might be working with some other people to help you figure that out and, and go through that treatment. Okay, we got a question. So, eight weeks of LDV soft is not recommended for which patient population with genotype 1 and a viral load less than 6 million, at least according to the AASLD IDSA guidelines. Patients without cirrhosis, black patients, female patients, male patients, or genotype 1A subtype. So see what you think. Let's see here, give it a second or two. They're coming in. We got eight, nine. I guess I should count how many people are, and we'll know if everybody's answered. All right, so let's go ahead. Do I just hit the next? Okay. So, do we give them the answer later? Uh, scroll back. Oh, scroll back. Did I, did I blow through it so fast? Oh, here we go. Okay. So, 40% identified black patients, and that would be, again, according to the guidelines, would be the right population to not consider using eight weeks of this regimen. And I'll, in the next slide here, take you through a little bit of this data. So, for sophlodiposphere, um, this is a treatment regimen that's recommended for genotype 1, four and, and six patients could be used. Um, so the standard approach was 12 weeks or three months of therapy. But there was this study um, that looked at using only eight weeks of therapy in a select population. And in the study, what they excluded were cirrhotic patients um, in particular and treatment naive patients were only included here. And these are the overall SVR rates. And again, SVR means we treat somebody, they stop their medication, we test again for hepatitis C RNA three months later. And if it's still negative, then that's what we call an SVR12, a sustained virologic response, and that really is a surrogate for cure. We know long-term, if you continue to follow, much less than a 1%, even less than a half of a percent chance that they're gonna have relapse of their infection. They could be reinfected, but not a recurrence. Um, so this was the response rates, 95% for the 12-week arm and 94 and 93 for the two different eight-week arms. Um, statistically, they looked similar. They were statistically no different in the SVR rates. Um, but there was a post hoc analysis that did several things. Some of this was requested by the FDA. One was looking at levels of viral load. And so if you're familiar with the label, you know in the label for sophlodiposphere it says to only consider using eight weeks if the viral load is less than six million. That's a pretty arbitrary number, and it was freely acknowledged that it was arbitrary, but when they restricted it to that less than 6 million, the number of patients that relapsed had actual viral recurrence became equal between 12 and 8 weeks. If you looked at the whole population, it was, a, it was about a double relapse rate in the, in the shorter treatment group. Now, there was another post-hoc analysis done um, by Dr. O'Brien that looked at some other factors. And what they found were that for women in the eight-week arms, they almost all universally responded, where most of the failures were in men. They were also in non-black patients or non-African-Americans, and the, those with um, a viral load less than 6 million, as we already talked about, had lower failures. So the guidelines kind of focus in on um, this specific set of criteria to recommend eight weeks. Um, HIV infection was not included in this. And there was another study with a similar regimen that suggested a higher relapse rate with eight weeks. So HIV was also people, persons living with HIV were also excluded from going for that shorter therapy. So one other wrinkle for treating genotype 1A patients, if you're using the regimen Elbosphere Grisoprevir, um, this is the only regimen where in a treatment naive patient with genotype 1A where there's recommended to do baseline resistance testing. 
really for all the other regimens and really every other scenario now, there's not really a clinical reason anyway that um, to do resistance testing. But with this regimen, there is. And this is some of the data that underlies that recommendation. So um, RABs are resistance-associated variants or resistance-associated substitution, sometimes you'll see. So first point is that resistance can be present in hepatitis C even if a patient's never been exposed to a hepatitis C drug. It naturally occurs because the virus just kind of is sloppy when it replicates, and sometimes it generates a resistance mutation just randomly. And so they're there. Um, depending on how you test, but most of the time we'd be using this kind of uh, approach, and what it means is population sequencing means you're just looking kind of at a higher level for resistance. So if it's there in at least 20% of the virus, you'll find it. And so about 5% that they tested actually had resistance, and when they did, their response rate for a treatment-naive patient with just using 12 weeks of elbosphere dropped from 98% down to 58%. And that's with the specific resistance to elbosphere, the NS5A inhibitor. And so it was data like this. In treatment experience patients, it was even a little more dramatic effect. Very small numbers of patients, um, which is something to keep in mind. But it was based on this data and a combi combined analysis, which I think I have in here, that showed really of baseline predictors, baseline NS5A resistance was one of the strongest predictors for having a failure with just 12 weeks with this regimen. So based on this kind of multivariable logistic regression and the lower overall response rate, it was the recommendation in the label after FDA approval that you do baseline resistance testing if you have a genotype 1A patient and you're going to use this specific regimen, Elbosphere Grisoprevir. Um, that's really the only scenario where resistance testing is needed in hep C. And again, with some of these newer regimens that have come up after, that have been pangenotypic and don't require that, things have been simplified a little bit, and a lot of um, insurers or payers kind of have maybe gravitated a little bit away from this, I feel like, because of that extra complexity. So we talked a little bit about glucapivir pabrentosphere, one of these pangenotypic regimens. And I'm just showing you the pooled data. I don't really need to say much more about it, except you can see these are the rates of cure, SVR, in, in various genotypes. This was in non-serotic patients, um, looking at eight versus 12 weeks. So this is one of the regimens that has a pretty broad eight-week indication, so just two months of therapy for a big a proportion of the patients you would be seeing. Um, eight weeks here um, is in the, the darker blue, and then the the Aqua is the 12-week arm, and what you can see is its response rates are 98, 99% across the board, and there was really no evidence that the shorter duration was associated with any decrement in efficacy. Um, so again, this regimen for all non-serotics, no matter what genotype, um, is if they're treatment naive, it's recommended for eight weeks. Every genotype except genotype three, even if they're treatment experienced and still non-serotic, it would be an eight-week regimen. So when you look at cirrhotic patients now, it's going to be 12 weeks across the board for this regimen in all genotypes. But again, you see the same spectacular response rates approaching 100% for almost all um, cirrhotic populations. I, this, is a, this study omitted the genotype 3. The genotype 3 patients, particularly if they're treatment experience or cirrhotic, are ones that you're going to do a little bit different with this regimen, particularly the treatment experience patients, and they had their own dedicated study. But again, very high response rates. Um, the other major pangenotypic regimen that really has a broad application is cefospivir velpatosphere. So now we're going from a protease inhibitor plus an NS5A to a nucleotide plus an NS5A. But again, pangenotypic, and this is just one study, 
showing um, across the various genotypes, again, we're in that 98, 99% cure rate. This is one pill once a day for 12 weeks. The, the very simple and nice thing about this regimen is it's, pretty, it's 12 weeks for everybody. You really uh, don't have to do much thinking. Again, genotype 3, there may be a few scenarios where um, you could potentially optimize therapy by doing some resistance testing and, and, and considering adding ribavirin, but those are pretty select populations. For most of the patients you're going to be seeing, it's going to be 12 weeks um, without the need for ribavirin. So I, there's a couple slides in here which just kind of try to summarize the, the guidelines. I'll make a plug for the guidelines, the hcvguidelines.org, which is a joint uh, venture between ASLD and IDSA. Um, it's, it's very user-friendly. You can go into that site and say, I want to do treatment naive, pick your genotype, and it takes you right to the boxed recommendations for what the regimens are. Then if you have more questions, you want to dig a little deeper, you can go into the text, but you can find the recommendations for the regimens, each of the recommended regimens, their duration, whether you need to use ribavirin very quickly using that. So it summarizes here. I'm not going to go through all this. Um, the ones that are in the bright green here are kind of the first line of recommended agents. So for genotype 1A, you can see you have several eight-week options. Um, you really should not need to use ribavirin in almost any patient. If you can switch, say if they have resistance from albosphere grosofovir, you're going to find ribavirin-free regimens and almost everything is going to be 8 or 12 weeks. Anything that was moved to an alternative um, a couple years ago was because it required a longer duration or you needed to use ribavirin, do other things. And this is just then for treatment experienced. Again, still you have 8 and 12-week regimens and shouldn't need to use ribavirin. So you have these options. And again, you'll have these, but you can go right into the guidelines website or on your smartphone and usually get pretty quickly to the regimen you want to, want to be thinking about using. So another question, so NS5A resistance testing should be considered in which population infected with genotype 3 hepatitis C prior to using sofosbuvir or velpatosphere? So I kind of alluded to this, but I don't think I gave you the answer. So treatment experience patients without cirrhosis, treatment naive patients with cirrhosis, soft decladosphere experienced patients, or treatment experienced with interferon patients with cirrhosis. vote, Andrew? Slacker. Oh, come on. I'm really picky. <laughs> really picky. Yeah. All right, so we've got like six responses. Treatment experienced interferon patients with cirrhosis was the most popular, and that would probably be the hardest population to treat, right? So let's talk a little bit about what some of the data is. So this is, um, as you can see here, one of the studies with soft velpatosphere and genotype 3 patients. Sorry, this is the GP data first. I put, didn't put that in first. Um, the GP study, so glucopyrrhoid pabrensphere, this is in genotype 3. And it looked at, first it started off with a 12-week comparison to soft decladosphere, which was one of kind of the original pangenotypic regimens. And then another arm was added that actually then also looked at 8 weeks, so going shorter with this regimen, glucopyrrhoid pabrensphere. And these were all non-serotic patients. And what you can see is essentially 95% for both of the glucopyrrhoid pabrensphere arms. Um, and so this is why eight weeks is recommended with this regimen, even in genotype 3 patients. Kind of in the DAA era now with all these new medicines, genotype 1A and 3, and in particular 3 has kind of emerged as maybe the hardest to treat. But again, it's all relative when we say hardest to treat now. It's because we're not getting 99%, we're getting 95%. Um, 
The one difference, even though it was 95% in both, the rate of virologic failure was about double in the eight-week arm. Now it's 4% versus 2%, but it was more. So that's caused some people to wonder a little bit about whether there could be some optimization there. There's really no recommendation right now. There is a signal for um, resistance being associated with this. this. This polymorphism that does cause some resistance seems to affect the eight-week arm a little bit. But again, right now, at least the guidelines don't advocate for doing baseline resistance testing in this scenario. We were talking about soft alpatas here in the question. So these are just the recommendations. Again, I'm not going to go over these again, but eight and 12-week options for really all. Genotype 2 patients, at least initially, seem you know respond very well to both soft alpatosphere and glucapivir pibrentosphere. So here we come to this the data that uh, helps us answer the question a little bit. So this is the data looking at soft velpatosphere for genotype 3. It actually it was compared to what at the time was one of the standards of care, which was 24 weeks of soft riba. And so this was the response with 12 weeks of soft vel broken down by cirrhosis. So non-cirrhotics did better than cirrhotics. And treatment experienced, you see a similar decrement. So in both treatment experienced um, patients, about 90%, and cirrhotics, 91%, with soft velpatis for 12 weeks. If you kind of put it all together in treatment experienced cirrhotics, it was 89% with that regimen. So based on that 89% in treatment experienced cirrhotics, which was the, the option most of you picked, but actually the guidelines went farther to say you should probably just use ribavirin in them, or the guidelines advocate for ribavirin right off the bat, just based on knowing somebody already has been treated before and has cirrhosis. So they recommend considering the addition of ribavirin up front and not doing resistance testing. It's actually either of these groups where they recommended resistance testing. If you have a cirrhotic who's treatment naive or a treatment experienced patient who doesn't have cirrhosis, that's the place where kind of equivocal but might consider doing resistance testing and then if you have resistance, adding ribavirin. So that was, I think the option I had in there was a treatment experienced patient without cirrhosis or a treatment naive with cirrhosis, either of those is where you should at least consider doing resistance testing. Of course, that's predicated on the fact that you're willing to consider use ribavirin. And if you're not, well, then don't do it. You're still in the 90% range. Um, treatment experience genotype 3 is where glucapivir pibrentosphere gets a little more complicated. Um, and you're going to generally be doing 16 weeks for a treatment experience genotype 3 patient, regardless of cirrhosis status. If they're treatment experienced, it goes to 16 weeks with that regimen. So again, that is sometimes where if you know you have a treatment experience genotype 3, the payer may take you away from glucapivir pibrentosphere, and you might consider something like soft velpatosphere for 12 weeks, but it'll vary. Um, but you do need to extend in that specific population. So I put this in just because this is actually advocated in the guidelines, even though um, I've never used this regimen, and it's probably going to be pretty hard to get, which would be uh, elbosphere, grisopivir, plus cefosbuvir. Um, and the reason it's in the guidelines is, is based on this study, which was a UK study that looked at genotype 3 patients who were treatment experienced and treatment naive. All of these patients in this study had cirrhosis. Um, and this combination did very well. So elbosphere, grisopivir, plus cefosbuvir um, essentially was 100%, and there were no virologic failures. The, the, the few failures they did see were loss to follow-ups and things like that, so they didn't actually have any virologic failures, uh, except for the eight-week arm, which is not a consideration. So. Based on this, it is in the guidelines. Again, I've not used it. I don't know, Andrew, Christy, anybody used it? Have you, so have you tried? I haven't, <laughs> I haven't even tried, yeah. I haven't asked because it's just been cost. Yeah, it's so hard to get. And, and we've got other very good options now. But so it's in the guidelines. If you see it, this is why. 
And so these are the recommendations. Um, and again, some, some areas where you might consider doing resistance testing would be, again, a non-serotic um, genotype 3 treatment experience patient would be one scenario where you might consider doing resistance testing to try to optimize therapy. Okay, so I alluded to the fact that soft Velvox was approved um, last summer, and it's really its sole indication right now, at least according to a label, is in patients who have failed DAA therapy. So they failed one of these other regimens. They failed soft lodiposphere, or they failed um, elbosphere grosoprevir, and you're trying to figure out how to retreat these patients. There were two studies that were published together in one, Polaris 1, looked at patients who had been exposed to an NS5A inhibitor as part of their first treatment and were now being retreated. Um, Polaris 4 was exposed to DAA treatment, but they didn't have an NS5A inhibitor. They had cefosbuvir plus ribavir, and they had cefosbuvir plus semeprevir, a protease inhibitor, something like that, and they were being retreated. Um, and it was just 12 weeks of this. This is one tablet once a day for three months. They did not use ribavirin in this study, and you can see, so this is, if, you're, if you have a hard-to-treat patient, this is the hardest of the hard-to-treat, generally. Um, and they did extremely well, as you can see. Overall, 96%, with really cirrhosis being the only factor. Resistance didn't seem to affect the responses to this regimen. It all seems to come down to cirrhosis. And so if you have a cirrhotic patient, it does dip a little bit. It goes down to 93%. Um, all the failures were really in, again, genotypes 1A and 3 are the ones that come up. And so... Um, despite the fact that this trial did not use ribavirin, if you have a genotype 1A cirrhotic patient who's failed DAs before, the guidelines would recommend considering adding, adding ribavirin. The same thing would apply to a genotype 3 patient. So um, there is, again, a little tweaking potentially, but this is really a very potent regimen. The one thing I will mention is there were not a lot of glucaprevir pibrentosphere failures in here. That regimen came along later, and it, there were two. They were both genotype 3, they were both retreated and cured with this, but we really have no data with soft Velvox for retreatment of genotype 1A patients who fail glucaprevir pibrentosphere um, with this regimen. And so I think that is maybe a slight question that's still out there. Um, I'm going to skip this for now and just talk in the interest of time of kind of, this is again what's in the guidelines in terms of the recommendation for how to approach retreatment of somebody that has failed a DA regimen. Do any of you have patients right now that you're following that have failed their first go-round? Just Cody, uh, Cody back there slacking. Uh, otherwise, yeah. Okay. And well, yeah. And I, I wasn't even looking at you. I knew that was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And it's so satisfying, right, to be able to tell your patient you're cured and come back. And it, it works out for, for almost all of them. Um, and then the other nice thing is, you know, if, if you do happen to have somebody that fails, and um, you can tell them there are options, and then, you know, whether you're going to treat them where you are or get some help to do that, um, it's actually even now pretty straightforward to retreat your failures. Um, I just want to mention a couple special populations. So one is end-stage renal disease. Um, so somebody with a GFR less than 30. There are some at least potential issues with using a cefosbuvir-based regimen in those patients. We know the metabolite builds up. We don't actually really know that it's harmful, but the recommendation would be kind of to stay away from that if you can. And now we have good options to do that. 
One would be Elvisphere grisoprevir. So this is CKD stage 4, GFR less than 30 or less than 15 at stage 5. You can see excellent response rates. You're limited there in that it's genotypes 1 and 4 predominantly, but then here's the data with Glucaprevir fibrentosphere, again, the non-soft-based regimens um, with excellent SVR rates, no different or if, if not higher in those with end-stage renal disease. Um, so good options there. Um, treatment in persons living with HIV, um, to make it really short, it works just as well. Cognizant of your drug interactions with the prominence of integrase inhibitors now um, as part of first-line HIV therapy, it's really eliminated most of the drug interaction issues that we really had to worry about. Um, so that's the, the short and sweet is it works just as well. And really, it's the same options for a co-infected patient as, as mono-infected. Okay, so the take-home points, we're in a good place. We've got great drugs to treat hepatitis C. We're talking greater than 95% really for every patient population. Now, even DAA-experienced patients, the trials suggest it should be over 95%. Um, no special populations, really. Um, HIV co-infected, end-stage renal disease. Decompensated cirrhotics are a very special population. We'll let Andrew deal with those, those people, but those folks. Um, resistance testing, really very limited role. I kind of highlighted where you might consider it, but you also have other options if you don't want to do resistance testing, usually in the same scenario. Um, and the big issues are what we'll probably spend a lot of time and all you are working on. It's really diagnosis and access um, and coverage limitations that are the biggest issue now. It's not, not having the drugs or being able to know how to use them. Questions? Yes? regardless of genotype for non-serotics, it's everybody, right? And then if they're treatment experienced and non-serotic, it's everybody except the genotype threes. But none of that other consideration. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. We used to spend all day doing that talk. Yeah. There was so, it was so complicated and there were so many different regimens. And yeah. know, there was like a whole day workshop of just going through it. Now it's become so nicely simple. Yeah. What, what do you all find you're using most, or what's getting approved most commonly? What's the preferred here for Medicaid? Mavret for Medicaid. I guess you didn't have expansion, so maybe that's not most. And then if you're going patient assistance, it works out no matter where you go, probably. Pretty easy. Got it. As a 
Makes sense. Was, um, it, was it the cost of the genotype test, or was it just yeah. a strategy to just make it just like it was? It was, it was actually the, the amount of money mechanisms in place at local laboratories wow. uh, within the eastern part of the state yeah. where you could get hepatitis C antibody testing and terminate testing performed uh, huh. for nominal cost to patients, but there was no internal mechanism for getting these tests. That would actually be kind of interesting if they published that, I think, you know, because, I mean, that's now what is being done globally, right? There are studies rolling out trying to do what we call minimal monitoring, uh, not doing genotypes, getting an antigen or an RNA just to know somebody's positive and then just treating them with one of these pangenotypic regimens. We have lab experience with the Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, 